heart into it. So yes, you're changing your way of practice from looking into more watching the breath. You also mentioned that you're watching um, the breath at the nostrils or at the nose tip. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So this, some very early meditation experience I got was uh, through uh, 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 Soto Zen. So um, there, there's a, a Soto Zen temple near me. And uh, as, a, as a very young kid, I was brought there by my father. Uh, and he did a Shinkantaza practice. And, and my uncle did too. And so that was my sort of very early experience with meditation. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then eventually I started doing, uh, you know, noting. uh, You know, as sort of taught by Daniel Ingram and uh, answering the core teachings of the Buddha and eventually came to read Mahasi Sayadaw and uh, Pandita, his book, uh, In This Very Life. And then I went on a Goenka retreat and uh, a 10-day retreat and a three-day retreat. And so I did some scan- scanning through them, and, and they did, taught in Anapana, uh, focusing so on Goenka the- is teaching the Goenka method. People now are teaching at the nose tip because Goenka himself did not teach that. That's one of the things I want to talk to you about. Really? Yeah. So it's been a little while. It was probably about seven years ago that I went on that 10-day retreat. Uh, and so, yeah, my memory of it, if, you know, if, if someone on the street would have been, oh yeah, talk about the Anapana that he taught. And I would have said it, it was at the nostrils, but you know, maybe my memory isn't so good of it, but then, uh, so right. Um, and then when I talked to you, you had talked about, uh, your instructions to me was to, to begin focusing on the long breath and the short breath and to do some counting and to work on gladdening my mind. And so I, I, I've been doing that. And I would say that um, essentially uh, what I was, I was working on counting the breath, uh, lengthening the breath, and probably focusing something like 90% of my attention towards the breath. And, and when I say focusing it on the breath, what I mean is not at the nostrils, but essentially uh, taking into account um, my whole body, basically putting my whole body into uh, my attention and watching the the uh, the breath at the nostrils, but also observing the breath in every part of my body. Essentially, is what I was doing. So you know, uh, watching the rib cage expand, the stomach expand, trying to be aware of any sensations in my arms, you know, just everything, just the effect of the breath on the body. Okay. Uh, And and that, that sort of, that's, that's been the focus. And what I've noticed from doing that and lengthening the breath, uh, and sort of noticing how at the beginning, you know, I'm not really able to take very deep breaths. Uh, so maybe, you know, I'm doing four seconds in and holding it for a couple of seconds. And even in those couple of seconds feel like, oh, God, you know, I'm, 
I'm going to pass out if I help, you know, exhale. And then eventually getting to the point where I can really lengthen the breath and, and the, the moments between the breaths get prolonged as well. Um, and what I've noticed is uh, that the PT uh, that I experienced, so from doing the sort of the, the well, since the Guanca retreat, I've always got a lot of sensations around my face and head, uh, even when I'm not practicing. So sometimes if I just sort of begin reading a book or just even incline the mind to thinking, I get the, like uh, sensations of uh, like squeezing in my temples or like pulsations in the forehead. Uh, sometimes it feels like there's like a wet cloth on my head, um, you know, or someone's sort of like massaging my head. And that, that's just sort of all the time. Um, and so normally when I do noting, I, I'll get some PT in, in the face, you know, maybe little feelings, tickling sensations in the face, uh, you know, little like sparks, it feels like a little spark sometimes isolated. Um, but what I've noticed is doing this, I get a lot more PT uh, in the face, a whole lot more. It, it feels almost like sometimes like uh, someone's dusting, like dropping some kind of very fine, uh, I don't know, like flour or something. And it's just a sprinkling feeling. Sometimes I feel it feels like there's webs. Like Do you like it? Yeah, it's 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 interesting to to sort of focus on um, those sensations. So once they come, you know, the mind wants to focus on them more and more, and to see the relationship of the breathing to those sensations. Um, and I've noticed that with the focusing on the breath in this way, that I, I've been getting some PT in in the sort of the uh, between the shoulder blades. Which is let us call them sensations. Yeah, just sensations. Call them pity because that's going to confuse the problem. Okay. I'm going to make it worse. Let's just talk about it sensations, and you can use the term pleasant or unpleasant sensations. Okay, so those sensations, I shouldn't think of that as PT. I I should think of pleasurable or uh, pleasurable sensations as PT. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well. Okay. Yes. In in a way. Uh, let's go back to um, the breath for just a moment, and we'll start with with that. Um, in ordinary uh, uh, beginners, the mind is a monkey mind, jumping all over the place from point to point to point. And if the meditator is practicing correctly, or even semi-correctly, some skills will start to be developing. As those skills start to develop, we then begin to modify the technique. Now, when both of the are, um, in fact, as we modify the technique, as we're making progress, there may be, in fact, three or four different distinct techniques in there. 
when uh, someone writes a book, naturally they want to be complete, and so they're going to put all of this stuff in their book. But when the people read it, naturally the greed of the of the Western human mind is to forget about the kindergarten stuff and go directly to graduate school stuff. And because they never learn the ABCs and never learn how to read, they're just playing with their PhD books because they don't know how to read them. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is the way that we have to understand that we need to practice according to the skill levels that we need to uh, create. Okay. And generally when people are practicing wrongly or um, partially wrongly, they develop the skills very slowly. And many students will then either be doing a wrong technique or a too advanced technique and do not get much progress. And so they uh, uh, get frustrated and two things will happen in that frustration. One is they'll either work harder and harder and harder at it, going in the wrong direction, or they'll give up and quit. Also going in the wrong direction, okay? So, what we have to make sure is, is that the student is practicing the correct things according to where they are. And you can see that, in fact, with, with music. That if a student, uh, a piano student, tries to play music that's above his ability, he'll become frustrated with it, never be able to play it well, no matter uh, how much he wants to. I know I was like that in high school. Mm. That there were some an, an example of that is that I could play the first movement of uh, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, but I couldn't play the second movement. <laughs> okay, I can hear it in my head though. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back to then what um, what is actually looked at in in Anapanasati as the various skills to be developed because the skills that are to be developed go along with um, actually all three of the Eightfold Noble Path, the Anapanasati practice and the Anapanasati Sati Sutta, as well as the Satipatthana, that they we're developing or breaking everything down according to the Satipatthana, the body, the feelings, the mind, and the mind's objects. <clears throat> And so Anapanasati is broken down that way and is actually stated in the Anapanasati Sutta that Anapanasati is a practice for the fulfillment of the Satipatthana. Now that one statement is very, very indicative because um, most of the people from Burma and whatnot, they love the Satipatthana, uh, they cherish it, they relish it, and therefore they follow it exclusively and they don't follow the Anapanasati method of practicing the Satipatthana. And for that reason, they uh, make a few left turns here and there. Okay. Um, but what we need to do in the beginning practice is start with the body. And from the body, when we gain uh, skills, we recognize that in order to gain the skills with the body, we've already got to be developing the mind. 
once we get the body and the mind developing together, then we can add the feelings in. Okay. And this is how it goes. We, we do things kind of in stages. A next way of looking at it is, is that if the mind is active, if it's jumping around, then it's a little bit hard to control and about the best we could do is corral it rather than tie it down. You get where I'm going with this? Okay, so we need corralling techniques mm-hmm. for the breath. And then later we can tie it down once the, uh, the mind gets really stable. So we can go then eventually to the nose tip because that's a very stable one little place and we can guard the breath as it's going in and out. But if we start there, we're missing the entire first and second grade, basically. Mm -hmm. So here you are just jumping into the third grade and third graders already know how to read. (laughs) <laughs> and when we're and uh, so uh, we're trying to do what they're doing, and we don't have the background of the base. This is a common problem with meditators. So let's let's begin to take first things first. And in the Anapanasati Sutta, it very specifically talks about mindfulness or sati with the in breath, and mindfulness or sati with the long out breath for each one of the various skills that are to to be developed in Anapanasati in order to fulfill the four foundations of mindfulness. Okay, there's a whole bunch of skills that need to be developed. Um, And that each one of these skills are developed while breathing in long and while breathing out long. A way of looking at it is, is that we're going to use the breath as kind of an anchor so that we're anchoring every few mind moments back to the breathing and then let the other mind moments during that breath do other things that are associated with Satipatthana. But we're always at least going to come back and be mindful of the breathing on the long in-breath and the long out-breath. Now what that does is it actually starts creating the skill of Sati because we are remembering to come back once every two to four seconds. Now, looking at it from the perspective of reaction time, that they've got various uh, uh, tools on the internet and they've been doing this for years. I remember the first time that I had my reaction time tested was probably around 1980. And I'd already been doing quite a lot of martial arts and stuff like that. the kind of things that are that are done. And I was uh, quite disappointed with the reaction time that I had gotten. I don't remember what it was uh, uh, in numbers, but I remember that I didn't like it, <laughs> that I was slow, that I was not up to the scratch that the machine said that I would be up to. I also remember that it was a driving kind of thing where... Mm-hmm. The video showed various things and you had to pick out something and press a button. Okay, but that's the secondary reaction time. A primary reaction time is kind of measured like the, the screen is red and when it turns green, you press, you click the mouse. How soon after the screen turns from red to green, can you click that mouse? Okay, 
The answer is uh, for human beings around in the neighborhood of 200 milliseconds. Mm. Around 200 milliseconds with some Olympian champions can go down to about 170. Mm. And that uh, ordinary people are up at 220, uh, 240. Many people are at 300. Uh, but at but at 200, it listed me as black belt karate, so I would back into it at mm. 200. Okay, now here's the point about that. We have also known through meditation and through other things within the Buddhist uh, system that a mind moment lasts about a tenth of a second. There's about a tenth of a second that happens. That means that uh, in the old days, 1910 through 1920, the movies that they had were at 15 frames a second. At 15 frames a second, the eye can see the flickering. That's why they called them flicks. Mm -hmm. But at 24 frames a second, we can't see that. We cannot see the flickering in modern movies because they're running at 24 and on videos, uh, they run at 30 frames a second. Okay, which means we're above that threshold of uh, of the mind moment, or not, no, not above it. We're below it. The things are happening so fast on the screen that the mind can't keep up with it, and so the mind kind of blurs things into the video. Okay, so we can say then that that seeing the red turn to green takes one mind moment to make that connection, and then the next mind moment is to press the click. And so in two mind moments is a reaction time mm -hmm. to see it and react to it. Okay, so now we're looking at this. Things happen pretty fast in the mind. So how long does it take you then to note that this is an in-breath and to note that this is an out-breath may not be but two or three mind moments, which means we're talking about now down to a quarter of a second, down to a tenth of a second. Right. So that means that in a breath, you've got, especially if it's a long breath, you've got plenty of time to do all kinds of stuff in there because you've got a whole bunch of mind moments going on. If you're breathing in long at four to, uh, seconds, then that means that uh, you've got 40 mind uh, moments in that in breath. And so there's uh, that mind moment is the time to have a thought. Okay. When we understand it like that, that things are happening really, really fast, and part of our uh, job as meditators is uh, to start paying attention to that stuff that's happening in the mind. In other words, we're going to actually begin to catch up with what the mind is doing with our sati. That the development of sati is fast. Mm -hmm. How often we do it and how quick it comes. That's the whole thing of it. And that's, that's called Anapanasati. Sati is part of the Satipatthana. Sati is part of the Eightfold Noble Path. Sati is the first item on the list of the Sambhojana. So you'd think that Sati is a pretty important factor, especially in the Anapanasati Sutta. Every statement is mindful of the long in-breath. He develops this skill mindfulness of the long out breath, he develops that skill. 
which means that in that uh, in-breath, we have time to make that, uh, uh, to see that this is an in-breath, and then we have more time to do other things on that in-breath. And then we have the out-breath, and we make the point, yes, this is a long out-breath. And now we have other mind moments to devote to doing other things on that long out-breath. This is the way that we understand it now. So, for the beginner, that long in-breath, we're not going to try to hold the mind at the nose tip, but we're rather going to experience the body. But step three of Anapanasati in the sutta is mindfully breathing in uh, the long breath. The student investigates the body. And the long out breath, uh, remembering the long out breath, then the student investigates the body. Now, uh, in the Bhikkhu Bodhi translation, Bhikkhu Bodhi puts in square brackets. Right. Something in the sutta that is not in the actual Pali. And that Bhikkhu Tanisaro and uh, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi have had kind of an ongoing 30-year argument as to whether that phrase actually belongs in the sutta or not. And the answer is it needs to be understood both ways because both ways are valuable. We can, and here's that phrase is understanding the body as you breathe in long and understanding the body as you breathe in long, and then Bhikkhu Bodhi puts it in, is understanding the body uh, of breath while breathing in long, and understanding the body of breath while breathing out long. So we can understand the body of breath is from basically the, the sinuses and the nose tip down through the abdomen, that this area here would be then the body that breathes. Anything that's associated with the body of breath, then we can do that. Now, with the Goenka method, as you remember, he talks about the touch of the cloth, the rising and falling of the abdomen, um, and all of that kind of stuff. And you can see that that's actually quite a different technique than, uh, than nose tip. Mm -hmm. Goenka doesn't do the nose tip because the scanning of the body with the breathing is, is counterintuitive for nose tip that we actually want to do the full body scan. But are we going to do the full body scan of just the breathing, or are we going to do the full body altogether? Well, the Satipatthana has the answer to that in the, in the point about that mindfully aware of the coming and the going, of the eating, of the defecating, of the reaching, the grabbing, the touching, the walking, in other words, whatever the body is doing when it's out moving, we can use that as an object of mindfulness of what the body is doing when it's doing something. But when it's not doing anything and sitting on the floor, uh, like in a meditation posture, then um, you can say, well, the only thing that's really moving then is the body of breath. And so, therefore, we would spend more time looking at the body of the breath. But unfortunately for Westerners, and I'll say it this way, we were grabbed up off the floor when we were three years old and put in a high chair. <laughs> the children in Asia didn't happen to them. So mm. here in Thailand, uh, we have parties at this house often. 
and people sit around on the floor. Uh, I've got uh, I've got two people that I'll talk about. One of them is a stepdaughter, and the other one is the partner of the other daughter. So I've got two female, young females, and the the stepdaughter I I began to notice her when she was 11 years old and now she's 18 and she still does the same thing she sits when she eats her food in lotus posture <laughs> full lotus that's how she eats wow yeah okay now westerners are impressed with that thai people are not impressed because that's a common sitting everybody can go into the lotus posture i've got an eight-year-old girl that can get into postures i can't get into <laughs> And I worked on Guy's posture for 40 years. But I'll also say something that there is in the Pali, in the, the English language translations, because I went back and I looked, because I saw it in Sutta number 38, so I went back to the Anapanasati Sutta to make sure that when the Buddha is talking about when you go to a hut, a heap of straw, to a tree, or to the forest, and sit down cross-legged that's in the sutta the cross-legged posture guess what the Pali does not say cross-legged it just merely says sitting and refers to a couch or to a chair and it's natural that if you're sitting on the ground or on the floor that you would be sitting in a cross-legged posture mm. but the cross-legged has nothing to do with anything other than bad translations of, of uh, Westerners who saw people sitting in meditation in cross-legged postures and thought that they had to be done in cross-legged posture. So in fact, whatever posture you're in is the correct posture for Anapanasati. Hmm. Whatever posture you're in, so long as it has only one property and that is is that it's comfortable and even if the standing posture because standing is an uncomfortable posture mostly for people walking is an easier posture than standing if you don't believe me look at any queue or any line of people standing in line waiting can they just stand there? No, none of them are standing there. They're fidgeting, they're pissing around, they're moving, they're lollygagging, they're worried, they're looking at their clocks and they're doing all kinds of stuff and nobody's just standing. So standing posture is a difficult posture for of humans, I guess, just to stand. Um, and yet a good meditation teacher like Achan Po uh, it would be common for people when he's out to gather around, to stand around waiting for him uh, to have an audience with him. And he looks, he notices, can people actually just stand there? Hmm. Or are they going to stand there fidgeting? Hmm. Okay. Another example of this, uh, kind of a funny one, is the Zen story of the Zen master who is sitting in his room uh, in front of the window looking out and he can see out uh, that where the students are coming into the house to see him and he'll watch how they put their shoes if they carefully uh, take their shoes off and put them side by side then he'll let them in and have the audience if the kid kicks his shoes off helter skelter 
then the the teacher will say, I don't have time for you now. (laughs) Okay. Now, the reason that we're talking about this is because this mindfulness that we're starting to develop has nothing to do with posture. And it has everything to do with mindfulness. To start waking up to what's going on, to see what you're doing, whatever posture you're in, all not all the time. That's a tricky one, because if I use the word all the time, the students will get into perfectionism and start beating themselves up when they catch that they're not doing it, rather than joyfully remembering to do it and then doing it. So we try to avoid using the word all the time, and instead we talk about it doing it whenever you remember. Sati. Right. Yeah. So when so when Sati is there, because whatever the skill it is, let us say that you had already developed your meditation to the point that you could drop into first jhana just like that. But then you don't remember to drop into jhana first like that. So if you don't remember to do it, then what's good is the skill. Right. Because you're not doing it because you don't remember to do it. This is why Sati is such an important skill to be developed, and that's why the Buddha wants you to do it within in-breath and with each out-breath, to remember that this is a long in-breath, to remember that this is a long out-breath. Do you see any use in actually saying those words? So, uh, you know, uh, breathing in... For the very beginner, it might be useful. Yeah. But I wouldn't use that as as necessarily a mantra, but it's going in the direction of a mantra when you say in, out, or in, out. Or you could actually use the word that they use in Northern Thailand, which is budo. Boo on the in-breath and do on the out-breath. However, mantra-like things are a little bit advanced. Let us look at it this way. Many people think that their job is to stop the mind. And they do it like Popeye trying to stop a freight train. They stand in front of it and hold their uh, their spinach-laden uh, uh, fist out trying to stop the mind. And they're frustrated. They can't do it. Okay, there's another way of, of looking at it, and that is, is that first we want to put, like a horse, we want to put it into a pasture. And the pasture has boundaries, it's got a fence. And so we're gonna put it in the pasture to keep it on our property, which means that we're going to keep it in the wholesome. Or Mm. if you're looking at it from the perspective of monkey mind jumping from tree to tree to tree, we're going to keep our monkey in just one tree and let him jump around in that one tree. So we're we're beginning to put some boundaries there. And the boundaries that we're going to put on are the boundaries of what is a hindrance and what is not a hindrance so that we're going to start removing the hindrances. Now, this is the major change from what is practiced in the Mahasi method versus the uh, Anapanasati is, is that in the Mahasi method, you note what it is. And then you note it again. Within Anapanasati, we're not necessarily noting in the sense that we know that it's there, but we're actually investigating it to see if this is wholesome or not. Mm. And if it is unwholesome, we're going to change it. This is one's right effort. You see, the Mahasi method doesn't take a whole lot of effort because you're not really doing anything. You're just noticing the crap. That's like living in a junkyard 
and uh, and having a flashlight it is all the daylight that you ever see. Maybe it's in a big um, uh, warehouse or something like that, and it's just a, it's a rubbish tip. And all you've got is a little flashlight, and so you can see this bit of rubbish and that little, and you can put up with that. But now with Anapanasati, that's like turning the lights on. And you say, holy mackerel, this whole place is rubbish. (laughs) Okay, so that means that we need to clear a space out in all of that rubbish and find a place where we can have some freedom. That's when we're going to start practicing um, the, uh, the, the gardening of the mind and gladdening of the mind is to stop with the rubbish and start with something wholesome instead. Mm-hmm. Even for uh, more advanced meditators, they have to understand that what we would call ordinary thoughts, or even we could call them junk thoughts, are still hindrances because it keeps the mind in the kind of state that it's been in all of these years with all of those junk thoughts. And we're actually, in, uh, with the practice of Anapanasati, changing the states of mind that we're in. We're going to change it. And these are the skills that we're developing. So, the very first skill that we want to develop while we're breathing in, noting that we're breathing in, and while we note that we're breathing out, the first skill that we want to develop after Sati is that investigation. Is what I'm doing wholesome? For the beginner, almost always, it's going to be, no, this is not wholesome, let me do something else. But there will become a time when you start uh, with sati, you do the investigation, you say, hey, everything's good, this is Mm -hmm. nice. Okay, that would be then the recognition of the third noble truth, or you actually, you can bring yourself out of hindrances into a state that is useful and worthwhile, and that we've got labels for that. But when we put these labels on it, the uh, Western mind goes berserk. <laughs> so that rather than talking about first jhana as just a collection of items, they look at it as a, as a goal, as something they have to do, as something desirable, as um, uh, I'm making progress in meditation and, and all this kind of stuff. But basically what we're talking about is bringing the factors together. And the number one factor that we have to bring in with this is the seclusion from the hindrances. Mm. Now, being free from hindrances, um, there's five analogies for them. And when we understand these analogies, we recognize that, wait a minute, being free from hindrances is marvelous. That's quite nice. And that we should recognize that, that, wow, freedom, freedom from these hindrances. And so the five analogies is one that is like being sick, that you're in bed, you're in the hospital, you don't feel good. And then you take your medication and a few days later and you feel like you're ready to leave the hospital. So you're looking for the doctor. Doctor, can I get out of here? Can I get out of here? I want to go home. Okay. There's a completely different change from being sick and, oh, poor me, take care of me, oh, I need to be in the hospital, versus, hey, I'm okay now, let me go home, I want out of this hospital. Okay, 
this is the kind of attitude that we want to have is from the attitude of sickness, of uh, depression, of unhappiness into, hey, I'm ready to go now. Mm-hmm. Another example of being free from the, uh, the, the hindrances is like being in jail and then getting set free. Mm. That in fact you are in prison and the prison you're in is the prison of your own thoughts. Mm-hmm. And you can become free from that prison. Another example, uh, in fact, this one, one is really, really powerful. And that is, uh, and in fact, it's quite useful to think that you've been on a journey. Now, you have actually been on journeys. And when you're on a journey, you've got baggage. And when you've uh, got baggage, you've got to watch that baggage. You've got to be careful. The thieves are out there. The, in fact, the thieves collect at the airport and, they, and the train stations just so that they can rip people off who don't take care of their baggage. So traveling is dangerous in that way. And let's say you've got all your bags over here in this corner, and now you've got to go up to the ticket counter. What are you going to do? This is why people like to travel in groups, and so one person can guard the bags while other people go and get work done. But if you're out there on your own, you've got to get your work done and guard your bags. Mm. And now, after the journey is finished and you get home, you can set the bags down, and, and very rarely does anybody unpack their bags immediately when they get home. No, they set the bags down, they lay down on the bed and say, oh, I'm glad I'm home, I'm glad that's over. So that's a way of thinking about being free from the hindrances. Wow, I'm glad that I can put those bags down and relax. Another example that the Buddha gives is the example of... Um, uh, being free from debt. Now, uh, people in the West are in debt a lot. They owe mortgages, they owe car payments, they have uh, credit cards, and everyone that I talk to would say, yeah, it would be so good if I didn't owe anybody anything. I don't have to think about paying bills. I don't have to make sure that the power is paid and the water is paid and the taxes are paid. I don't, have to, I don't owe anybody anything. And I don't have to keep track of any of that stuff. Okay, so that's like being free from the hindrances means that now we're out of debt. That in fact, most of these hindrances have to do with debts that we owe. Mm. Things that we've got to do. And what we want to do in our meditation is to practice being free from all of that stuff for a little while. And to practice the skill of feeling freedom from what the mind gives us to do. This Mm. is why uh, Anapanasati, the primary point now, is the step 10 of Anapanasati. Now, if we look at it uh, this way, there are four tetrads. There are four points or four steps of Anapanasati for the body, four steps for for the mind, excuse me, for the feelings, four for the mind, and four for the mind's objects. Uh, basically what you can say is the first two of each one of these things, like one, two, five, six, uh, nine, ten, uh, and uh, 13, 14, is more for the beginner. And then three, four, seven, eight, uh, 11 and 12, and 15 and 16 
are therefore more advanced students. But that's not actually uh, a hard line, but it's just in a progression like that. Okay. So the, in the, uh, the mind, we want to gladden the mind. This gladdening the mind actually means we're going to change the content of the mind from the hindrances or whatever it was that we're thinking into doing something that's uh, wholesome. We're going to take the unwholesome thoughts out and put wholesome thoughts in. Wholesome thoughts like, wow, this is nice. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, In Sutta number two, in the Saba Asaba Sutta, it talks about what is worthy of our attention. What is worthy of our attention? Most people will spend time thinking about their past, thinking about their future, thinking about who they are and what's going on, trying to solve their problems and what like that. And the Buddha puts those into the, the realm of who was I in the past? Now we can have that who was I in the past when I was a child? Who was I in the past when I was a teenager? Who was I in the past last week? Or who was I in the past in some previous lifetime? All of them are in the past. And so uh, whether rebirth or reincarnation exists or not is irrelevant because we do know that the past exists. And thinking about who I was in the past is not wise attention. That in fact, you probably, if you start thinking about the past, you're going to run across some tragedy or another, because you've had tons and tons of tragedies in the past. And so if you muck around in the past, you're going to remember some tragedy. <coughs> and if you don't muck around in the past, then the other place to muck around is in the future. Well, guess what? We can create uh, jobs to do to try to fix the tragedies that we remember from the past. And so we go from past to future. The past finds a problem. The future is going to fix that problem. And here we go back to work again. <clears throat> now we're in debt. We got to go fix the problem that we saw in the past or it's a prison for us. By the way, there's a fifth item on that list, and that is being a servant or being employed, mm. that you got to get up in the morning and go to work. You actually owe something. So you can see these things are interrelated. Working at a job and being in debt and being in prison are all the same thing mm. when it comes to being in the mind. They're all the same thing. I got to go to work. What have I got to go to the work to do? something that I remembered to do. And so now I've given myself a job to do. With Anapanasati, it always comes back to right here, right now. But then some people can go off and, well, who am I? And what is this? And what's it all about, Alfie? And all of this kind of stuff. And that's still not very happy oriented. That's still a struggle. Um, if you tell me who I am, then I will know who I am. The answer is you don't need to know who you are. You just need to be happy. If you're <laughs> happy, it doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. 
but we get it with the cause and effect get messed up. We think that if we know what we are, then we will be happy. And the answer to that is no, if you find out for sure who you are, you'll be really miserable. (laughs) <laughs> because you'll be <laughs> because look at all that time that you investigated all the stuff that you were where the Buddha says no that stuff is not worth uh, mucking around in that basically we want to be in the here now and looking at it from the perspective of what is suffering right now and what is not suffering so if my thoughts are dukkha if my thoughts are hindrances then let's throw them out mm-hmm and be in the third noble truth instead right here right now wow this is it i am free from suffering i got no problems no worries everything is hunky-dory so this is the way that we begin to uh to practice with the gladdening of the mind and we can do that during many of those thought moments that we have during that in breath and during that out breath like i said we've got oh let us say if we're breathing at five then that means that there's 55, uh, uh, 50 mind moments in that in-breath. You can do a whole lot of stuff in 50 mind moments. You can gladden the mind. You can relax. You can just cool out to chill. So uh, there is actually a lot to do in that in-breath and in that out-breath, but we don't have to do everything on every in-breath and everything on every out-breath. We don't have enough mind moments to do everything, but we certainly have enough mind moments that we can, um, let us say, visit the various things. And so gladdening the mind, relaxing the body, uh, a deep sigh, out-breath, all of that can be done uh, with the outbreath. So this is how we begin to uh, put things together. And as the breath gets longer, we can then begin to deepen this sense of well-being. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so with the gladdening uh, of of the mind, I have noticed that, you know, as... Uh, as the sati gets uh, more established and the concentration grows uh, um, and the hindrances start to go away, you naturally begin to feel gladdened, you know? Uh, you just feel... What a uh, relief. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it just sort of comes naturally. Um, but then I've also worked a little bit unconsciously trying to... Uh, I don't know, expedite the process a little bit. And, and like you said, I've done it through trying to, to relax the body or to imagine, uh, you know, uh, focus on the soothing sensations of the breath. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I, I did, um, I'm curious, you know, what you might think of this. So I, I used my imagination. I don't, I don't, you know, usually muck about with, you know, uh, visualizations or anything, but uh, one thing I imagined was it's sort of like right here in my chest was a ball of light. Uh, one time I did, and I imagined it being sort of like the light of the of the Dhamma, you know, just this pure goodness. And one time I imagined it as sort of like a jewel. And so when I breathed 
uh, in, it was sort of like being filtered through that light and going into my mind and then out. I was sort of trying to exude it. And then when I breathed down, it was filtering through the light and I was trying to bring it into my legs and my lower body. And Did you enjoy uh, that? I found that it really, I don't know, like it, it really uh, helped, I don't know, make me feel good, you know, which, which again is not something I ever did, you know, with the Goenka or the noting. Um, you know, th there would be a good feeling in being concentrated and uh, and not having the hindrances there, but this is just sort of on a different level, you know, a whole different level, uh, and I think it it increases your your ability to to concentrate and have your sati uh, be strong. Okay. Um, let's leave that as something for you to experiment with more and more. But one of the hallmarks that I have seen in both the Mahasi and the Gawanka method, and they're basically the same, same thing. Uh, one's a little more stylized or formalized than the other. But one of the things that I see that they're, they're missing is this quality of uh, gladdening the mind and bringing up sukha. And uh, they do talk about pity, but then they misunderstand what they're talking about because the pity is only going to come with the sukha. And if they don't talk about the sukha, then the pity is not going to happen. Okay. Mm -hmm. And how we bring about the sukha, and by the way, this pity that we're talking about uh, is often used with the, the term pity sukha, mm -hmm. as opposed to just pity. Okay. That pity and pity sukha, whenever pity is mentioned by itself, it's either uh, uh, in association with. Uh, sukha or it's adjacent in words to the sukha or it implies that sukha comes along with it that they are always hand in hand or are together that uh, basically you could say that they're both on a continuum but this continuum cannot happen without the uh, gladdening of the mind in other words you have to throw the hindrances out in order to develop the sukha now, the sukha itself, uh, the word sukha, is in the Pali directly opposite of the word dukkha. Hmm. Not only that, but it's directly opposite in the Thai language, that they have the word dukkha and sukha also. In hmm. fact, there was a, uh, a famous um, uh, advertisement, a beer ad, that had kwam suk dikum dum dai. Now, Kwamsuk is actually happiness itself, happiness that you can drink. Now, I know it's a beer commercial, but that just points out the language. Okay, Kwamsuk or Sukha. I also have a student whose family is from Gujarat. And he says in the Gujarati language, guess what? Duki and Suki are exact opposites, satisfying mm -hmm. and unsatisfying. Okay, so mm -hmm. it's interesting that the Buddha is talking all about Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. And now in the Anapanasati Sutta, he's talking about the development of the skill of Sukha. Why? Because we've already developed the skill of Dukkha. We're good at it. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
we have been practicing dukkha and practicing unsatisfied and and practiced uh, criticism and being critical and judgmental our whole lives. Now it's time to change the critical back into the nurturing, Mm -hmm. to begin to nurture ourselves, to tell ourselves everything is all right. That in fact, in the Pali dictionary, the word sukha has the following list. It has safety, security, comfort, and satisfaction as its primary ingredients. Satisfaction. That's it. Why? Because dukkha is unsatisfying. Mm -hmm. Sukha is satisfying because we also, we feel safe. We feel content and we don't want anything. So this is a feeling, this is Vedana, this is in the Vedana section, but we arrive at this by talking ourselves into it, by using wholesome language, wholesome thoughts, then we'll start to develop it. Or you can think of it in wisdom. An example of that, um, in these analogies that we use, you can see several analogies would have to do with things are dangerous. In prison, things are dangerous. When we're sick, it's dangerous. Okay, when we're out on a journey, it's dangerous. And if we're in debt, that's also dangerous. So there's danger in the uh, the hindrances and that we wind up with a kind of a little bit of fear in our lives. Now, basically, 100,000 years ago, when man had not developed cities yet, we all lived in a jungle. We all lived in a dog-eat-dog environment, uh, survival of the fittest, and everything was dangerous, and we needed fast reaction times. I even have to go so far as to say that in this case, it wasn't dog-eat-dog. It can be human-eat-human. The humans have have cannibalism as a taboo from our past. It went from cannibalism to uh, human sacrifice, and then from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice, and then from animal sacrifice to a great big God one-time deal sacrifice. <laughs> but we still are in in that situation of unsafe. We don't feel safe that we start, and we built our junk, uh, we built our cities in order for security. In fact, wall cities, the whole idea of a wall city is for security. And yet our modern cities, we call them a concrete jungle. Guess what? Our, we made a city to make ourselves feel safe and we still don't feel safe. <laughs> so our city building didn't make us feel safe. We still feel danger. Mm. So that's a feeling that is, let us say, habitual, comes from our childhood because when we're uh, babies, life really is dangerous. Most babies that are born, the likelihood of them dying um, is very high. Infant mortality in many countries is very high. Childbirth, and in fact, most children never get born. They die as a, a miscarriage. Okay, so things are dangerous when we're really little and we get the sense of fear when we're little. But right now, there's no no reason for you to feel afraid. Wisdom will tell you that you're safe. Look around your room right now. There's no alligators on the floor. 
You don't have a python crawling up your leg. There's no spider uh, uh, on the desk coming towards you. No, everything is safe right now. Why is it then that we still feel unsafe when the reality of the situation is, is that we're okay? This porch that I'm on is not dangerous. The room you're in is not dangerous. Why is it that we have this underlying sensation that things are not quite right when in fact knowledge or uh, wisdom or investigation will tell us that things are in fact not dangerous. So this is also part of the hindrances that we have to remove is not just the thoughts of danger, but the kind of feelings of being in danger also and get ourselves into a feeling state of everything is okay. Everything is safe. Everything is sabai, sabai. That's a Thai word. Everything is hunky-dory. No danger. Okay, Mm -hmm. any job that you have to do can wait for right now. Right now is not the time to do the job. Now is the time to sit down and relax and enjoy my life. Okay. And so So would you say that uh, the the PT and the Sukha rise together at the same time? No, no. Let me describe that to you. So let's go next. Okay. Actually, the answer to that is po. Sometimes yes and sometimes no. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you some examples so that you can understand how it is. In meditation, normally the sukha starts off very easygoing and then the uh, the pity will will build. Mm -hmm. And this pity this building is basically the attitude that I can do this. You see a lot of Westerners because of mistakes of the uh, translations and whatnot. They think that pity is a bodily sensation. You mentioned that. Yeah. You talked about it. Okay. So uh, pity is not necessarily a bodily sensation. It's an attitude. And the attitude gives rise to these bodily sensations. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what we're trying to do then is to develop the attitude of a winner, developing the attitude of a lion. So we take that sukha that everything is okay and we add to it is is that, hey, I can put myself into this okay state anytime I remember to. No, No matter how obstructed the hindrances are, I can throw them out and come back to this present moment and feel really good. That's the pity. The pity is the is the attitude of a winner mm-hmm. and that the Buddha himself was known as a lion. So that's his pity is the attitude of a lion. I can do this. I'm on top of this show. Mm-hmm. I can handle any um, uh, debate. I can handle any conversation. I can handle any police. I can handle anything that happens. I can even handle my own death very happily. Mm. That's the pity when it's the right attitude. The right attitude is bring it on, boy. I can handle this. Mm. I'm the champion here. Well, you see, most of us don't have that. We have the victim's position. Oh, I need help. Right. Okay. So, so we need you can, can you have the attitude of of PT without the, with, without the, uh, 
corresponding body sensations. Yes. Or like a very low level, very low level sense. Mm -hmm. So high levels of uh, bodily sensation uh, isn't necessarily a uh, an indicator that your attitude, that the PT attitude is good. Like you can still have a good high PT attitude without the sensation. Is that true? Well, okay. But let me counteract that with some analogies of the real world. Mm. Okay, I'll give you two analogies. One is at a uh, football game where um, one guy um, makes a touchdown. What does he do when he makes a touchdown? Celebrates. Okay, yeah, but what does he do with his body? Hmm. Like, he right throws at the his hands in the air, he does okay. this, yeah. he may yeah. spike the ball. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, but not only does the guy who does that, but all of his teammates do. In fact, they might even go into a body pile. They just all jump on, right? So everybody's doing a lot of movement. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but the people in the stands, what are they doing? The team that uh, is following this guy or their team won, and those uh, fans, they're doing this too. They're screaming and yelling and jumping and having really good. Why? Because they have the attitude, we won. Mm-hmm. And so that attitude of we want does bring on the bodily sensations. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But it's the right attitude. The sensations without this attitude don't mean very much. Mm-hmm. But the attitude of a winner followed by that gush feeling. Oh, that's the pity. Okay. That it does have a bodily component to it. But the bodily component doesn't cause the pity. The pity causes the bodily sensations mm-hmm. okay so now the next one is is that right after the touchdown is made what do the fans do they sit down and they sigh ah, relief <laughs> we've got that score that's now the suka taking over with the satisfaction mm-hmm. so first is that elation we got it we did it right We're the winners we have it and now it melts into satisfaction. Ah, got that one. So pity and sukha are the same thing. They both have the feeling of success. Or excuse me, they both have the feeling of satisfaction. But pity has more the feeling of success. We did it. We got this one. We nailed it. I'm successful at this. If I can do it now, I can do it next time I have hindrances. And so that feeling of I can do this is actually part and parcel of the of the pity so uh, this it does correspond to some of my experience and maybe one way I would describe it using this analogy of you know you can do it uh, is that it's kind of like riding your your bike up a hill um, and uh, you know, so when the PT is good, um, you know, there's that feeling of like, I'm getting it, I'm getting up there, I'm climbing, you know, you're not like, oh, I can't like, you're, you have that feeling like I'm, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. 
But then I think the sukha is sort of that feeling of now you're you're going down the hill. Okay, and so now you can go downhill, and now it's no longer effort. So that's the thing that you need to look at then is that let's take that effort out of it. Yeah. The effort of climbing the hill and take the effort of riding downhill instead. Yeah. A lot of people think that meditation is an uphill climb. No, it's a downhill uh, uh, coast. Yeah, there there is that point where you... You just feel like you are, I don't know, uh, I've heard it described as, uh, to switch the metaphors here, to not the bike anymore, but the feeling of, of being a young child laying on the floor in your parents' house uh, with the sun on you, and, and it just feels safe, and it feels uh, comfortable, and you know, just that total feeling of easiness. Mm-hmm. Okay. It seems to come. Theo talks about puppies. Puppies. <laughs> uh huh. And we did can't think about just just puppies with the, as a concept, but rather thinking about uh, the young puppy with their uh, uh, their cuteness and um, their. Um, Wanting to be nurtured and want to nourishing. Okay, so when we're talking about puppies and we're really uh, referring to uh, the nourishment or the nourishing or the uh, the, how uh, nurturing, I think would be uh, the the right word for it. Uh, Feel nurtured and to feel pleasant. So this is a skill to be developed. This is an important thing. And how do we develop that? Is with the in-breath and with the out-breath. As I breathe in, I breathe in joy. And as I breathe out, I sigh and relax. That's another way of of talking about it. There's many different ways to do it. But it all comes under the, uh, the point of gladdening the mind so that we can allow the body and the feelings to go into a state of relaxation, comfort, ease, and the, with uh, uh, the additional uh, perspective of, yeah, and I can do this anytime I want to, that I'm successful at this. So this is now, uh, in Anapanasatu, we've talked about step one. We haven't talked about step two so much, but step one is the long in-breath and the long out-breath. Step three is experiencing the body doing body scans and whatnot. Now we're also talking about relaxing the body. Now, I know that Bhikkhu Bodhi translates that as tranquility, but tranquilizing, I don't like the word tranquilizing. When I think about tranquil tranquil and tranquilizing, I see a guy with a gun and a dart and a lion that's keeled over almost dead. Okay, and and is tranquilized. So tranquilized to me means out of it. Right. But the word in Pali is basically just passive, which means so, relax, to relax the body. This is step four. And then we have step five, which is pity. Step six is sukha. Step seven and eight is actually um, uh, unifying the mind and and freeing the mind from these hindrances. But that's a little bit later stage. 
Okay, do you so have you a, a favorite translation of the Anapana Suti? Because I've got I've got the the Bhikkhu Bodhi one that you're mm -hmm. talking about. I've got this one, which is the Tiknat Han. And the Tiknat Han doesn't have some of the same issues that you've been talking about with the Bhikkhu Bodhi. Uh, but it's got some other issues. Like he doesn't want to say PT. He doesn't want to say Sukha. He wants to say, you know, I don't know. Um, he just says like joyful and happy. So I feel like there's a little obscurity there. And then I, no, I just. No, that's not obscure. Those are really excellent ways of saying it. Pity and happiness. The happiness is actually the, the attitude. I can do this. I'm successful at this. People become. Um, a musician immediately after they perform well in public and they're taking their bows, they feel extraordinarily happy because they know that they have just been successful at what they were doing. Right. Joyful, happy. Yeah. So I feel like in a way this is better than the Bhikkhu Bodhi and like for a number uh, three and four, like he says, breathing in, I am aware of my whole body. Um, and so he, he isn't suggesting that it's just um, the breath or just like a, a specific portion of the breath or the breath, you know, at the nostril or anything. Like he seems to be uh, accepting that it's a bit of a wider um, attention. Okay, well, let's look at um, just for a second, then you continue on. Uh, in the Mahasi method, they have the little phrase rising, falling, touching, sitting. Right. You, okay. Rising is the in breath. Falling is the out breath. Touching is bodily sensation and awareness. And sitting is the proprioceptic sensory awareness that we know what you know what posture you're in right now. You do not have to look at your feet to see the position they're in. You know they're what position they're in. Why is that? Because you can feel it. How do you feel it? It's called the proprioceptic system. So rising, falling, touching, sitting, that uh, when you stop, when you slump, you can you can experience that. You know that you're slumping. If you if you wake up, you can set up, right? right. Right. How do we know we're slumping? We don't have a mirror. We don't open our eyes. How do you know the body is slumping? How do you know you're sitting in a cross-legged position? The answer to that is. <laughs> So intuitively obvious, and yet people don't even recognize that there is a proprioceptic system in the body that allows us to know exactly where the body is at any particular instant in time, and that athletes and people in sports, they rely upon that totally, almost exclusively. Mm -hmm. You have to know where your body is like you can like to catch a ball you can see that ball you can see the trajectory you know where it's going to when it gets close to you where it's going to be and you need to put your hand in that place before that ball gets here right okay that's uh the proprioceptic system that moves that because you're watching the ball you're not watching your hand you're not making sure your hand's going to be in the right place you just bring it automatically because you're using something different a different sensing system than the eyes. The eyes are on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. 
because you don't need to watch your body. Mm. You are watching it with this proprioceptic system instead. Mm. Okay, and that that touching and sitting then um, is part of our proprioceptic awareness to become aware of what your body is doing, what posture it's in, not just the touching of the of the body on the floor because you can feel it. You can feel the touch uh, when you're sitting. You can feel the heaviness of your butt on the floor, but you also know the posture that you are in. That's the proprioceptic. So the touching, you can touch the floor, you can feel the heaviness, but you also know the posture. This is why touching is different than sitting. So rising, falling, touching, sitting, this is all step three of Anapanasati. Mm. And then the next step is to relax the body. So back to your question about do you read Bodhi or do you read Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa or do you read uh, 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 this translation or Thich Nhat Hanh's, uh, view? The answer is to all of that, yes, yes, and. Mm. The right way to understand it most deeply is learn the Pali. Right. And I I highly encourage people to do that as a toy. Mm. Because it's really surprising how bad the translations actually are. Mm. Well, yeah, like when... So it, it's funny, like, for instance, uh, with the, let's see, which one is it here? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, the, fourth, the, the fourth element of the Satipatthana Sutta, that's also like number 13 here, right? So, you know, sometimes you hear people refer to it as objects of mind. Sometimes you hear to it referred to as dhammas. Um, so many different uh, explanations of what that fourth element is. That I would have to say that even now, like I, I would struggle to easily define the fourth foundation. The fourth foundation of our being is our perceptions. Is how uh, Thich Nhat Hanh defines it. And so, yeah, maybe I, to I, define, the I define perception different than that, but I yeah. can understand how he's using the word. OK, I will go so far as to say that for most people, that is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if you look at the distinction between how the Satipatthana Sutta and how the Anapanasati Sutta treat that triad will give you some ideas. Because one takes this perspective and the other one takes this other perspective. And as long as the students is taking one or the other perspectives, they're going to miss it completely. You have to have both perspectives. Okay, so in the Satipatthana Sutta, the perspective is the following. The objects of the mind are either going to be wholesome or unwholesome. In the beginning of that section of the sutta, the unwholesome is the hindrances. And it talks about each one of them in turn with the one little phrase, and this is to be eliminated or avoided. (laughs) 
And yet most of the people who read the Satipatthana through the Mahasi method, they don't pick that up. They think that the hindrances are to be investigated. Mm. No, they're to be investigated only enough to recognize that it is a hindrance, and then we avoid it. We don't bring it in and give it a bath. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay, we don't let that intruder in. We do not bring him in as an invited guest and talk and give a long conversation going. No, we recognize it immediately that this is unwholesome and out it goes. So that's a major point. This is why in the Satipatthana Sutta, it has it in the following order. Number one is the hindrances. And then it talks about the five aggregates. Mm-hmm. Then it talks about the seven factors of enlightenment. And then it talks for a long time about the Eightfold Noble Path. Basically, what we're saying is, is that you can either have unwholesome hindrances in the mind. Or you can have wholesome things like Dhamma in the mind. So that's the way that the Satipatthana Sutta does it. Now let's look at the way that the Anapanasati Sutta does it. Is in the Anapanasati Sutta is talking about movement, about moving from one thing to the next to the next. In that regard, recognize that these hindrances are in fact temporary. Mm-hmm. That like we talked about right in the very beginning about the mind moment lasting about 200 milliseconds or two mind moments. Okay, that's what we're talking about. That's the major teaching of the Buddha. He didn't use milliseconds. He used Anicca as the term. Everything mm. is constantly moving. Everything is in a flux. That, uh, that means that if in this mind moment there are hindrances in the mind, the next mind moment can be something else if you relinquish those hindrances. That in fact you can actually watch, watch it right away as you throw it out. Mm-hmm. And so uh, step 13 is seeing the Anicca, seeing that things are fading away, that anything that comes to be is going to come to not be. That stage 14, the arising and the falling. That goes back to the Mahasi. So the arising then is Anicca, the falling is the deterioration, the falling away. Now the next one is to recognize that things die. Things cease, things quit. There is dukkha, but there is also cessation that is not dukkha. Just because things die doesn't mean that it has to be dukkha. Mm-hmm. Normally, the reason that it's dukkha is because of some clinging. And so step 16 is relinquishment is the word that's used in, in uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, to relinquish, to let it go, to throw it out. Well, we're doing that with the hindrances, right? We're recognizing right. that is a temporary little hindrance that's come in and mucking around. Let's throw that thing out, relinquish it, and let's come back to something more wholesome. Now, we can see that relinquishment is in a little way, in the mind moment way, or we can see it in a really, really big way, like the grief of getting over a dead relic. You have to get over it have to relinquish it, have to throw that out. This is one's right effort then. So you can see how the Eightfold Noble Path is actually what we're practicing, the skills of the Eightfold Noble Path, but we're building them by using sati, by using Anapanasati. So, so I just noticed something. 
so uh, I just got this, um, the Buddha Dasa book today. It just arrived today, actually. And uh, let me see here real quick. So which one is it? What's up? I said, which one? Because he's got four. Mindfulness of breathing, a manual for serious beginners. Yeah. Okay. Yes, that's uh, 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 Santiago's translation. Yes, I know. I was actually there when some of those talks were given back in <laughs> 1989, I think it was. Really? So, yeah, looking at the 16 uh, points here, I've noticed that in this translation, it says, like, for instance, looking at, uh, like, the fourth uh, quatrad, um, he trains himself constantly contemplating impermanence, I shall breathe in. He trains himself constantly contemplating impermanence, I shall breathe out. Mm -hmm. So here, it includes the I shall breathe in, I shall breathe out in all of them. Yes, that's uh, mindfully. You left out the word mindful. I will mindfully breathe in while contemplating impermanence. I will mindfully breathe out while contemplating impermanence. Hmm. So the breathing, the breathing is included in, in all of them. And every one of them. Not only that, but the verbs are different. You see, in uh, step one and two, uh, it's understanding or it's sati. But in all of the other one, it, uh, in the Bodhi translation, he uses the word, thus he trains himself. These mm. are all skills to be developed. And, uh, and the Pali word is bhava right. or bhavana. That's why Gunaratana has the bhavana society. It's the place you go for training. Also, Deepa Bhawan, which is the development of light, which is a meditation center here on the um, next door island, you can see that Deepa Bhawan is the same as the Bhavana. B-H-O-V is the root. Hmm. Well, guess what? That same is the same root as step number uh, 10 in Paticca Samupada. The development. Okay, but here we're talking about the development of the self in uh, the Paticca Samupada, which is basically referred to um, uh, the analogy would be pregnancy. Before a child is born, it's got to be developed in the womb. Okay, so that's what we mean by development. And all of these skills have to be developed as skills, just like a piano player has to develop. So the little analogy is, is that little Johnny is getting ready for his second or his third um, recital. And while he is practicing piano, uh, Aunt Susie comes over and mommy uh, and Aunt Susie are having a conversation. And so uh, mommy says, Johnny, why don't you play your new recital piece for Aunt Susie? And he plays it for him and he plays it perfectly. Now, most people will think that was an event. He played that piece perfectly, just like he would have the event of playing it in the recital. But within our um, Anapanasati world, we don't see that playing at this time as an event. We see all the times that he's been working on that piece as part of the development, part of the skill development. So this mm -hmm. was all a process. 
And this was just one moment in the process when he played it correctly for Aunt Susie. This is not a special event. It's just another mind moment, just another part of the process. Mm -hmm. This is what we mean then by contemplating impermanence, that we think that an event, playing the piece correctly, that's something special. Oh, no, it's going to rot away immediately. <laughs> Everything keeps changing. Mm. Everything is a process, and it needs to be seen as a development of a skill. Mm-hmm. And so slowly, slowly, over time, you will develop the skill of sati. Over time, you'll develop also the skill of sukha. And as you develop the skill of sutta, you'll get the attitude that you can get into this state anytime you want to, and that's when pity gets strong. The pity mm-hmm. comes when, with the knowledge of, I can do this. It's a, a complete feeling of success. Mm-hmm. And the feeling of success is a complete different feeling than the feeling of failure, even if the event is over. Like, for instance, a prize fight. Both the guy who wins the, uh, the fight and the guy who loses it are really glad that it's over. <laughs> but the guy who got beat up, he doesn't feel quite as good about this fight being over as the guy who won the fight. The guy who won the fight, he's the one who feels really good because he's the champion. Mm. So this is what we mean by then the pity is the knowledge that I can do this. The knowledge that I'm developing to become um, a competent, high-quality, high-class human being, and I am no longer a victim. I'm not a victim to the police. I'm not a victim to the teachers. I'm not a victim to my mommy. I'm not a victim to the paycheck. I'm not a victim to my bank account anymore. Now I'm the boss here. Mm-hmm. We take that attitude on inside the mind. I can handle anything. This is... Um, uh, one of the most important skills that we develop with sat, with uh, Anapanasati is this, this can-do attitude. Because that can-do attitude, it eradicates fear. Why? Because if I have the attitude, I can do this, and I'm not afraid that I can't do it. Mm. So you can see that with this winner's attitude, this pity comes sukha, automatically but the way that we normally develop it is by developing sukha first we eventually start building up this so that they work hand in hand let me so, give you one more example oh sure the other example is is that on uh, new year's eve in new york city or in washington dc they will have a big ball coming down 10 9 8 7 and when it gets to zero what does ha- what happens? Drops completely. Everybody starts to cheer. Everybody jumps up and down. Everyone is so relieved that that old year is over, especially 2020. What a year that was. <laughs> and now we're happy. Okay. And so everybody is jumping for joy. And then right after that, then the music stops, all anxiety comes on, shall old acquaintance, and everybody hugs each other, and they rock back and forth, and they feel sukha. Yeah. So in this regard, both of these times, the, the pity came first and the sukha, but right. normally the way that we're, because we're not really good at bringing up pity automatically, 
most of us can't do it without making a touchdown or having a New Year's Eve party. Mm. We don't have it as a skill to be developed. Uh, but once it becomes a skill that's developed, now it operates in the normal way in the sense of, yeah, the pity and the sukkah work together. Hot diggity dog, I could do this. Uh, and so that's that pity sukkah sequence right there they work hand in hand so it it almost feels like uh so when you sit down and you begin practicing it almost feels like that you know there's a pretty clear path about where you need to go what you need to do you know you begin focusing on the breath um you know the, the 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 pt begins to increase you get some sensations in the body uh, mm-hmm. you're usually my attention then gets a bit wider and then, you know, I transition into some sukha, and then you feel, you know, I don't know, like, like that feeling of confidence. You feel good. You feel like you've gotten into a groove. And uh-huh. then what seems to happen to, to me then is, uh, I sometimes, you know, I will get into a place where my, uh, my attention seems very wide very, you know, panoramic, open. Mm-hmm. very open, and I feel very relaxed. And then at this point, I sort of uh, feel like, um, you know, where do I go now? You know, I, I've sort of gotten the into. Is... <laughs> <laughs> I know that's so Western mind. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Where do I go next is always because we're always going and going and going. I'll bring up the analogy of pilgrims and pilgrims' progress. Do you know what a pilgrim is? Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, the actual, there's actually a book from the Middle Ages called The Pilgrim's Progress, okay? What is a pilgrim? The whole point of the pilgrim is, is that he's going someplace. He's on a journey, but he's on a journey to someplace. He's on a journey to a holy place or to a shrine. What does the pilgrim do when he gets to that holy place? When he gets to that shrine, what does he do? More than likely, he does some uh, some pujas, some uh, some ubi dubi gabi gabi, some uh, rituals or whatever, and then he goes to the next shrine and he continues being a pilgrim. And there he was in a holy place, and right. he left. Right. Yeah. And here you are in a holy place. And you're saying, okay, what's next? <laughs> well, it, it's it, it, the momentum goes away, and so you you end up in, in a and it feels very uh, equanimous. And at this point, um, the thoughts begin to come back because it's sort of it's so relaxed, and, and the momentum seems to drop away. Where you know. Um, like the counting of the breath, I kind of want to stop doing that. Okay. I kind of want to. You just gave uh, yourself the clue. Yeah. Okay. That's the clue. Is the thoughts come back again. When the thoughts come back again, you're going to say, oh, no, I want to remain in this state. So in the, in the story of the pilgrim's progress, when the pilgrim becomes dissatisfied with this holy place and says, oh, I got to go to the next one, that's that thought that picks him up out of his holy place and puts him on a journey again. There you go again. You're (laughs) off on a journey again. You've lost it. Okay. 
The yeah. Buddha talks about this state um, is to be developed getting into it. The skill of being easily to able to get into a state of comfort and ease that is sukha, pity, everything is okay. And then the next skill to be developed is to be able to sustain that. Right. Then, in yeah. fact, the applied thought and sustained thought, this is exactly what we mean by that sustained thought, is to be able to sustain having wholesome thoughts in the mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then let us say that what we are going to do is investigate that holy place to investigate that shrine to find out how nice this place really is rather than saying, okay, time's up, got to go, <laughs> got to go back on our journey again. Yeah. Got to go back into the hindrances, go right. back, pack our bags and go off on a trip, go back into debt, go back to jail. <laughs> uh. Okay, so that's the answer then to it is, is that we have to learn to keep this state going. And that's the skill to be developed, the skill of getting into it and then the state of being able to maintain it. And once you get that state, now we can begin to talk about higher jhanas. But almost all the students that I know about, they if they get if they do get first jhana, and generally it's not, they just talk themselves into it and said this is first jhana. And then immediately they want second jhana. Mm. Hop to the dog, to the dog, to the dog, on they go. No. Right. This first jhana is the absolute base. Let's say if someone becomes skilled at fourth jhana, 99% of his time is developing first jhana. If he has first jhana, then the other jhanas are quite easy. Do you, uh, do you find it useful to distinguish uh, between samatha jhanas and vipassana jhanas? That's a little bit beyond what we need to talk about today. That's a whole different um, uh, concept. <clears throat> Basically, what you can say is, and I'll give you just a tiny little bit about this, is that the normal way that people work with jhanas is long, slow, hard work, struggling and, and whatnot. Uh, and the idea of the Vipassana jhana then is that once you develop first jhana so well that you can just pop into these states easy. But you can pop right back out of them. But when you pop out, you're not going to pop back out all the way to hindrances. You're just going to pop back into first jhana. And are PT and Sukha connected to the jhanas? They are the definition of jhana. Oh, no okay. pity, no jhana. No sukha, no jhana. Yeah. Uh, no seclusion from the hindrances, no jhana. No applied thought, no being able to make the mind do what you want it to do, no jhana. And when you stop having the mind do what you want to do and start going back into hindrances, you lose the jhana. The first jhana has five factors. Now, one more that I'll add to that, and that is the breathing is key in, in this, especially with the, the connection that you were making between uh, the sensations of pity. The sensations of pity can actually be understood to be that actually what's going on is your body is being woken up, is being um, 
brought alive by the extra breathing. Mm. Okay, so because you're breathing extra, you're getting more energy, more effort in the body, and the body becomes tingly alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That tingly aliveness is also associated with the feeling of can-do attitude. Mm. I'm on top of the game. I feel alive. That's <laughs> also kind of a tingling. Mm. And so you feel the tingling. You can also say that it is something like goosebumps. Mm, right. That you feel so good that it just. <laughs> yeah, I can bring it up just by thinking hat. about it. It kundalini just comes right up the back. <laughs> yeah, a lot of different ways it can show up. Right. Yeah. But it all, but it really is uh, associated with delight. Yeah. If, if these sensations don't have to do with delight, then they're not anything to do with pity at all. Pity is all to do with delight, the delight of being able to do it. So I wonder, uh, not to get off track too much, but like, you know, when people say the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and they're mm-hmm. usually talking about a moment of heightened awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe they heard a sound and then, they, you know, they're like, what, what was that? Ooh, and then they get that feeling. Is that them actually getting a jhana factor, a PT, you know, like they're, they're waking if up. If it does, it's, it's almost, I would say yes, but it's almost instantaneous. Yeah. That within five or ten mind moments, that PT is going to be gone. Right. And part of the reason was is that because they went into the hindrance with that question, what was that? And right. now we've got to go off into whatever that was. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we're we're looking at yes, maybe that's a momentary thing, yeah. but we're looking at being able to go into that state easily and then maintain it for a long period of time. These are the skills to, to be developed, the skill of going into it to collect these factors together. The factor of throwing the hindrances out, gladdening the mind, getting ourselves in a state of satisfaction, then knowing that we can do this, adding that extra ingredient to it while we're taking the deep breath and energizing the body, and we feel really good, tingly alive. And that's pity then. Mm. And those are the five jhana factors that, that you just... the first five jhana factors. Or the first five, the five first John effects. Number one, freedom from the hindrances. That's the big one. To be here now. To two, to pay attention to what's happening right now in a really joyful way. Hey, you can do this. This is really great. And so we gladden the mind, and with that gladdening the mind and the relaxation and the deep breathing, we bring on a sense of well-being. That sense of well-being is free from fear, free from anger, free from sadness, mostly free from fear, but it's also free from wanting anything. So we're free from all of the hindrances, which means that now we're free from all of the causes of suffering. We're not doing anything that's going to give suffering any fuel. Can we maintain that state? Mm. We're not bringing any more fuel back in for uh, to give the hindrances any fire. 
So the pilgrim is in the holy place. Let him remain in that holy state. You are, in fact, in a holy state. You're whole. Mm-hmm. So let's leave this now. We've been going at it about an hour and 40 minutes. Sure. And you go and practice this and enjoy yourself. And then uh, a few days a week, call me and we'll continue on. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Alan, it's been a joy to talk with you. I really want, and I'm glad to see you're making progress. That's really great. Good. Thank you. This Congratulations. is a, a wonderful opportunity. I'm very, I'm very grateful for, uh, for you teaching me and working with me. Okay. Bye now. Okay. We'll see you. Bye-bye.